welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Hello, and welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is Lynn King-Tolliver. She and I, I think, became friends, at least over the course of the past two years, but we've known each other for a while through um, the African-American Real Estate Professionals Organization here in Los Angeles. Um, She is, I'd say, a well-known entity within the commercial real estate private equity space. Uh, She owns a women, uh, she's a woman who owns a commercial real estate uh, private equity firm uh, specializing in uh, GP advising, portfolio strategy, acquisition, repositioning, um, and she manages, uh, I see, quite a few different kinds of uh, properties in the United States markets across a variety of property types. So I think she is a great person to talk to today about what um, what it's like to be a woman in this space, uh, how she got where she is today, because I think there's always lots of great uh, wisdoms and intelligence that we can learn in people's stories. And I'm happy to have you here today, Lynn. Thank you, Carlin. I'm excited to be part of your uh, podcast. I think today, you know, this time is a really interesting time for us to be sharing our stories. And I think this in particular environment has enabled us to speak, um, at least for me personally, quite a bit more candidly about my experience than I probably ever did past. So this should be a fun conversation. Wonderful. Um, So I usually start my uh, podcast with understanding a little bit more about you as an individual, how you grew up, how you uh, kind of see the world, what lenses have helped to shape who you are. So um, how has your upbringing shaped you? What is it that um, has happened in terms of, you know, when you were a little Lynn and now kind of now what what are those experiences? So um, I am one of four children. I'm the oldest of four. I think anybody who knows me wouldn't be surprised that I'm an eldest child. Um, my mom and dad were married for 46 years, and I grew up in a very sort of secure um, household. We were very religious. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness uh, at the Kingdom Hall and Bible study all of the time. My mom and dad both came from broken homes, and they were determined to provide just a really stable, secure sort of um, background for us. And so while we grew up, um, I think at the time I was growing up, I didn't understand exactly how uh, meager kind of our income was. Um, You know, they kind of scraped to make everything uh, seem normal and we had everything that we really wanted, but there was not a lot of extra. Um, So I grew up right here in Southern California in Pomona. Uh, I went to Pomona High School, graduating high school. I went to a state. My parents didn't want me to go away to school. I stayed here. I went to Cal State Fullerton. Um, I uh, ended up in commercial real estate. I'm one of the few people who actually got their 
business degree, ended up with a degree in finance, in real estate finance. So that path was sort of, uh, it changed. I started out as an accounting major, but once I took my first finance class, I knew exactly what I wanted to, which direction I wanted to go. So I think in, in a lot of ways, I have a pretty typical um, growing up background. Mom and dad were home. My mom didn't go to work until I was in high school. And um, the oldest of four children, my brothers and sisters, all still live close. And um, I've been married now, coming up on uh, 31 years. And both my boys are, are now out of college and just working on the career and trying to understand kind of what comes next. And interestingly, also, what are the motivations that come with what comes next? Yeah. So you said the minute you took a finance class, you knew this is what you wanted to do. What was it about that finance class that kind of sparked an interest for you? Well, you know, when I was growing up, and especially in high school, I figured, okay, I'm going to be a working mom. What am I going to do? And I thought accounting, because I was always kind of good at math. And I thought accounting will work because then if I have to work at home, if I need a flexible career, and I knew people who did accounting on the side, what happened, right? But accounting is very historical looking. You're looking at what somebody did, what decisions were made, and how they are recorded, right? So you're basically recording the financial transactions, recording the financial history. When I took a finance class, I was like, that's what drives all of those decisions. And I wanted to be part of making those decisions, creating the story that, that drove those accounting decisions, not the other way around. So um, that's when I got just hooked on, a, on finance because it was time value of money and how do, you, how do you decide how to finance this or finance that. And by then my work experience had already given me quite a good exposure to real estate, having worked for a real estate banker, a real estate broker, um, a residential developer. Um, I kind of took the long path to graduate college. So uh, I had a lot of work experience by the time I came out. And I really wanted to be one of those decision makers. I wanted to be part of that process that drove those um, decisions. Okay. So when you transitioned from accounting into commercial real estate, what was that like? Because I know lots of folks who are always wanting to break into the industry, transitioning from another. What, what are the things that either you learned about how to do that or how you you know, figured out how to land into that next opportunity? So when I started in accounting, I actually was working for a, uh, a company that generated partnerships, mostly for tax benefits and, and whatnot. So I was learning kind of about real estate while I was on the accounting side. I think the bigger transition for me, not getting a job in accounting, I mean, at the time I was, you know, low level, entry level, uh, doing payables, whatever was required, construction payables, you know, kind of any of that to kind of hone my background. But probably the bigger transition was when I was working, and at the time I started at, um, uh, I was working at Lincoln Property Company, as a matter of fact. I graduated, knew I wanted to go in finance, but all my work experience was accounting, was when I was able to transition out of accounting into acquisitions. And that was a big, big move. I mean, even everyone in my organization understood that moving from portfolio controller out of accounting over into acquisitions where I started running performance and doing valuations um, was a big move. And that took probably on my part quite a bit of lobbying. I had let people know that that's what I was really interested in, but quite a bit of lobbying to have people 
make the connection between what I had been doing as a property accountant and running budgets to just take it that, that really it was a natural next progression to now I can do the performance because I totally understand the bottom line. Perfect. So what's the most important thing you've learned uh, in your work? Like if you can look at your career in terms of, you know, this is how I used to approach things. And now looking back, I kind of switched into approaching things differently and it has you know, opened up things for me, or I've learned how to either manage things differently. What, what does that look like for you? Um, I think one of my biggest assets or one of my biggest attributes when I was early starting in my career was I was, I was not at all afraid to say that I don't know the answer, like that, that I don't know. And, but I will go find out. Right. So whether it was talking to title people, because the first acquisitions I did, they handed me a title report and they're like, um, do the first review. And I was like, I actually don't know. I, I mean, I know what it is, but I have no idea. Right. So I read through the report and I immediately called the title officer and said, OK, this is my first one. So I'm just going to literally give you all of my questions. And I was not afraid to act like I was 100 percent on the ground level. And so she was super happy to help me, gave me tons of information and tons of resources. And so I think that positive re response made me know, well, it's okay to just keep asking questions. So it didn't matter if it was an engineer, if it was a structural report, whatever it was, I was like, you can give it to me and I will, I'll figure out what we need to know about this. So I always was willing to ask questions. And if it was in a meeting or whatever, I was never afraid to say, I don't know but I can find out, right? And so that enabled me to, to one, not act like I knew everything, not try to be the smartest person in the room, but able to garner the resources and the team, the, the people to be on my team and work with me to get the job done. And I think so much of that is what real estate is all about, right? Whether you're an acquisitions person or you're working on a property or whether if you have property responsibilities on a day-to-day on a -day basis, whether you're doing a development ground up or working on an acquisition, there's so many myriads of subjects that are all sort of disjointed that come together under the roof of a building that nobody knows all of the answers. And I always laugh that I get to be an expert on subjects that I never cared about because somehow it became a key point in an acquisition or a property, but it keeps it really interesting, keeps you always meeting with other people and always giving other people an opportunity to be your resource, your ally, and for them to show off their expertise to you. So I just, you know, kind of lean on that as an ability to draw people. In. Yeah. So as a woman who owns her own business um, and learning kind of the ropes of getting in these doors, in these spaces where there may not be a lot of lens out there, can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like and any lessons you've learned along the way in terms of, you know, being a, a black woman in this industry? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that didn't start when I became an entrepreneur, which was only three years ago. That really probably started when I, you know, really moved into acquisitions. Um, in the accounting world, I would say it's a bit more diverse who you see at the table, who's all, who's doing things. 
But definitely once I moved into transactions, and I've been doing it a long time, so now it looks a lot more diverse, and I'm so happy that I see more women doing it. But when I started doing it, there were not many women, and there certainly were not many African-American women. And so it was both um, interesting. I was, I was accustomed to being the only me in the room, right? Um, probably when I was five in the fifth grade, my mom moved us to another neighborhood to get us in a better school. Well, then we became one of two black families in the school. So I, I often went to class and I was, you know, the only one or one of another, one of, you know, two. And so that got a little better when I got into high school because Pomona High was still was much more integrated. It was still predominantly white, but it was much more integrated then. And then when I went to Cal State Fullerton, it was back to the same thing, right? Because now I'm walking onto that campus and there was a very small population of African-American students. I was a business major. There were business majors sprinkled throughout, but it was not uncommon to go to class and be the only um, African-American or the only woman. So um, I had to get comfortable operating in that and speaking up in that and then um, just try and do my best to be effective you know, in that. So I think that sort of led to, I'm okay with being that person in the room, but it does kind of set the tone for how are you presenting yourself, right? And so I think mostly I determined that what I wanted is to be seen as smart and effective. You're going to see the smart and effective person. Don't worry about the fact that I'm a black woman, right? And I think that that, you know, kind of served me well up to a point because then uh, in school, I got comfortable with it. In college, I was comfortable with it. Um, and then and when I got into transactions, that's when you really start seeing in the brokerage community, um, in the ownership community, in the executive ranks of you know the companies that we're buying from, who am I negotiating with? When it came to the attorneys that I'm working with. And so the, the, the me's got sparser and sparser and I saw myself less and less often. Um, and so, it was, you know, in, in all honesty, I'll say, again, it was a blessing and a curse, right? Because if I walk into a room and it is, you know, full of 95% white men, they remember me. I, I, I don't have to worry about do they know who I was, do they know what I do. I introduce myself, we have a conversation, they're going to remember me. And I try to, um, one, make that always, uh, uh, they remember me for something positive and about my experience and and their experience working with me, but also that that meant to do everything I can that when the next transaction comes, you're okay with Lynn being across the table from you and having that having that interaction. So in terms of, I'd say, you know, there's setbacks, there are obstacles, there's things that happen that you're just like, ah, this happened to me. You know, what could I have learned? What could I have done differently? Um, can you talk about those, you know, moments when you're like, oh, I totally blew that. Um, what lessons do you learn? How do you come back with just like, I'm, you know, dust myself off, get back on the horse. What are those, what are those, you know, I'd say moments yeah. that you, you kind of realize I, I got it, even though this is not feeling great right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that um, for me, one of those lessons that, that I think about and it stands out to me was as, um, as coming up in my career, I'm a very direct person. And, and I personally view that as an advantage, right? You're gonna, 
but everybody is not as direct. There are various, and especially as you get in a broader circle, whether it's another culture or just various regions here in the United States, people deal differently. People approach the business interaction differently. They approach that conversation differently. And so me being very direct, it was sometimes they were like, well, she's just all about business and she doesn't care about the people. And I'm like, but we're not here to be family. We're here to get this business done, right? But it can't be, again, very often because I'm coming to the table, here I am, acquisitions, or we're working on a merger, we're working on an acquisition, we're going to development, something. I'm always the person who comes with an added responsibility to what people already have on their plate, right? So whether it's the asset managers who already have a portfolio, but now we're going to add to your to your portfolio, we're, we're going to do this acquisition, or the property managers or the integration team, whoever it is, my projects are always kind of like the special projects. Everybody wants them. They, they're how we grow the company, but it's always a special project. And so um, I was given feedback that, you know, people think you're just coming after you're, you're only interacting with them for what they can do for you. And I was like, oh, but I thought we were doing it all for the company. Nobody's doing anything for me personally. And I took that. I would be offended by that. Right. Like, why are you giving me this feedback? We did a great job in this acquisition. And, you know, finally, one of my, one of the gentlemen who was a, who was a great mentor to me in my career said, you can take, you can hear what I'm say, telling you and take the feedback and move forward, or you can keep doing it the way you're doing, but it's going to hold you back. And so I had to really look at it and say, why am I fighting what's being given to me as feedback instead of realizing it's for my own, advancement, right? And so I had to kind of say, okay, and adjust my style. I'm like that on a personal level, but again, personal level and maybe maybe even a work environment, I just want to be seen as effective. Don't worry about who I am, Lynn, the woman that's coming in front of you. Just see me as effective. We're going to get this job done. And so I had to put a little bit more of my personality and myself personally on the table to establish relationships Right. And so instead of starting the meeting with, OK, here's our agenda, the meeting has started with, OK, how was everybody's weekend? You know, and then kind of limit that to the first five minutes of the meeting so that you can have some rapport with um, with people. And I would say it has absolutely served me well. Right. To be able to relate to people better. But I think also having that having feedback come to me that way and having to adjust what I was hearing so that I could not be have my feelings hurt, but why am I getting this feedback has also helped me as a manager and as a mentor to help folks that I need to give feedback to. Because, you know, when you're talking to driven professionals, type A's, they have an agenda, they're moving forward. And sometimes, you know, you're leaving a little a little massacre in your wake. You gotta, you gotta understand what's going on. Um, but they don't hear that, right? Because they, but, but it was effective. It got the job done. And so, me knowing how I reacted to that feedback in that situation has been able to help me to kind of relate to where they are and also try to deliver that message in a direct enough, but also in a how, why would I, why am I spending time telling you this or working with you on this to you know, help them come to that same conclusion. This is about moving you to the next level. 
I know you've got a lot of projects and, you know, different things that you work on. Is there anything, if you could remove all the, you know, any barriers or constraints? I know right now our economy is kind of in this wonky place where no one really knows what the next six months is going to look like. Um, but what are those passion projects, those things that you would just love to do, the things that when you think about, you know, why I got into this business, why I love being in this business, what what does that look like for you? So actually that that question is easy for me to answer because it's what I've been working on, honestly, for probably the past year and a half. But this current environment, since, you know, we've had so much social unrest and it's shining a light on so many inequities, it makes it even more um, applicable. So my background, having been in transactions and joint ventures, both domestically and internationally, understanding so much about bringing all the pieces necessary to kind of finance and build a capital stack for a a successful real estate project really put me in a unique position to help whether they're young and fledgling, emerging, whoever they are, the young developers, the young folks trying to get into real estate. And we know it really is sort of one of those asset classes that can unlock the path to more wealth and stability regardless of your economic status, right? So if it's your first home, if it can be, you know, and if you graduate, as a, we as a people can graduate from our first major investment being the home we live into, our first major investment is something that would actually make us money, like an income-producing property. And so, you know, I've been in the institutional level, so I, I kind of approach it from that level. But my passion project would be to run an private equity, a value-add, an opportunistic private equity firm specifically to fund minority managers because that access to capital is the biggest gap that that we have. And so very often, you know, the bigger institutions, they don't have anything against funding those managers, but they have um, built-in guidelines that they don't even see as the obstacles to those managers being able to approach them, whether it's what your already established track record to, oh, but we only invest in the major metros. And I'm like, they don't understand both the opportunities they're missing out in maybe secondary or tertiary markets, but also that if they would also look at the income stratification differently to understand how different sectors, different income sectors behave, they're missing out on stability of income just because, you know, they're accustomed to, we've done business in these markets. The research covers the business we've done in these markets. And they don't bridge that gap. And so I think my background, both as an African-American coming from just a totally middle market um, upbringing, so that my family, we, the whole strata, right, from folks who are needing, you know, maybe it's government assistance all the way up to, you know, now retired with pensions and, you know, they're doing fine, but I've seen it all. And so that's my community. And so my ability to then guide institutional capital as to how to invest in that community, which also means I can reach into that community and the operators that would be there and bring them along, right, to to grow them up. So um, that is my passion project. That's like, you know, I have the business plan. I have been actively marketing the business plan and, uh, and, and trying to talk about it. And I think right now, again, like I keep saying, with this time, where there's so much focus on the social unrest and the inequities that exist systemically, right? 
in our um, in our capital system. And I do believe in capitalism. It's it's fantastic. It's it's why you can come here with nothing, and if you're dis determined, you can build something. But there are systemic limits that it's, and and obstacles that are built into our system that we have to actively tear down. And um, I would love to be a part of how do we, you know, build something that takes one of those systemic barriers out of the way. That is fantastic. Let me know how I can help because this sounds fantastic. Um, I think there will be a place for all of us. Do you have any upcoming launches you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, yes, there are three business lines that I'm currently actively working on and have partners uh, specifically focused. One is uh, I'm very passionate that there should be an income producing vehicle focused on B and C apartments. Um, it's one of the best performing sectors over the long haul. And it's also one of the most threatened sectors in our uh, real estate career, in our real estate universe. We really need workforce housing, but it's under threat for two reasons. One, it's too expensive to build. And two, it's the sector that gets uh, cannibalized a lot because as soon as the market starts to do well, then an investor will buy that property, improve it, and raise the rents until it's no longer in the workforce and it starts to be in the bottom of that next sector. So I think that there are two things that we could do by creating an income vehicle specifically focused in this sector to protect workforce housing, which is one of the biggest gaps, and also provide investors with a, uh, a way to invest in an asset class that they typically don't invest in because the assets are either too small or don't meet their quality standards, but provide outstanding returns. So uh, be on the lookout for that, it's the attainable attainable apartment communities. Uh, the second is that I am working with um, uh, folks here in Los Angeles, uh, Phil Hart and Bruce Thomas, on biotech and bio sport, biomed, biotech, and biosport. Um, there's a lot of technology yet to be developed, whether it's life saving, life enhancing, and age enhancing. Um, technologies and the real estate necessary to provide incubator space, to provide space for these companies to grow and they bring outstanding jobs to the communities. And many cities have, have control of land either by the universities or hospitals or what have you, where they would love to see this development come. There's much more focus from institutional capital there. And so we are working on bridging that gap, providing the development expertise and the planning expertise to bring more capital um, into those projects, and we are looking nationwide. We have a couple of sites that we're looking at in Southern California. Uh, we've had com conversations with folks in Atlanta as well as uh, on the East Coast in the Virginia area. So uh, be on the lookout for that. That's Biomed Development Group. And then the last one um, I'm working on is with some partners out of Arizona, and we are launching a hotel fund. Uh, it was really focused on um, development pre-COVID, but now we know that there's going to be a lot of disruption in the industry. And we've already seen that's the biggest sector seeing of loans going into special servicing. There are going to be owners that don't make it. There's going to be capital that's chasing those. And we put together a partnership of uh, individuals with deep expertise in the hotel industry uh, to be able to take advantage of that disruption and really provide some high quality prop uh, properties that we're really focusing on 
attributes that will allow them to be uh, attractive for more than one reason, not just the business tra traveler, not just the leisure traveler, but that really tie those attributes together and pre uh, present a property that folks would want to go to for more than one reason and create a very defensible um, investment. So uh, I think you should be able to look out for those as well. Perfect. So how do you continue to, you know, learn, stay on top of things, keep up? I know I've seen you on panels. You're like, you know, you got it together. She can tell you what's happening here. She can tell you what's happening in Asia Pack. She can tell you where things are moving. So, you know, where do you keep, you know, your inform? Where do you get your information or how do you keep up on what's going on uh, in yeah. either the real estate market or the business world? Are there like books that you read or places you go to find this information? Um, so I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a, a internet troll, right? So um, I'm that person who doesn't subscribe to all the art, all the magazines. So they often tell me you've exceeded your your limit of articles you can read with us this month. So you have to go somewhere else. But I often exceed my limit, whether it's you know, um, the New York Times or Chicago Tribune or, you know, the Sun Times, wherever it is, the articles that, sh that strike my fancy and I will keep digging and I read that article and I'm like, but what about this part? And I, so I just keep clicking those links and use the, that information to then spur me to look at, well, how does that tie with what the, the market report from CBRE on that market says, right? And those are readily accessible. So, um, you know, in the past when I was at my life or Heitman, I had all this research fed to me. We got these quarterly updates and you got these monthly things. And so now I don't I don't get that. So I have to actively go and find it. And so whether it's someone pointed to an article on LinkedIn that spurred me to read that article and then to keep clicking two or three more articles, um, I just I just I dig for it. I, I dig for it. And. When there's an opportunity to speak on a panel, I kind of decide what is going to be my contribution, what lane am I filling on that panel, what am I expected to to kind of contribute, and I do try to prep myself for that. And I'll call, like I'll, I'll call my guys at East Hill, I'm looking for this, I'll call my guys at Seabury, I call, again, I told you, I, I don't pretend to be the expert on everything, but I'll find out. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I know you are involved in quite a few organizations. Are there specific ones you'd like to talk about that you're involved in? Um, are there other, you know, areas that you have a passion and an interest in that we may not imagine? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you, well, you missed it. You mentioned a, um, a African-American real estate professionals, Los Angeles. I am a, uh, one of the original founding board members. I now serve on the advisory board. And, you know, that really started from the fact that, again, as people of color in this industry, we are here and we're actually here in now in some starting to be decent numbers, but we're still such a small population that if we don't have a specific place to reach out and see one another, then we start to feel isolated. And so, um, I was really happy to be a part of that organization to to try to create a place where folks who are involved in, in commercial real estate, institutional real estate and advisory in the Los Angeles, in the greater Southern California area, they knew, okay, well, 
here's, here's a group that we can connect to. And I'm really proud of where the organization is going now. We're kind of calling it AREP 2.0 because we've let some this, a younger cohort of professionals who are in it now and establishing themselves and building their careers are really setting the tone for both what we put out as educational information, the networking events, and how we connect with people. I mean, if you had left it to, to me and the senior team, we wouldn't have done an Instagram you know, session where we were talking to real estate professionals. But they're like, no, this is how we have to do it. And we were completely blown away by how many participants we got, right? So we're loving both the energy and the use of technology that they're using to both spread our awareness. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do to make more people aware of commercial real estate as a career option. Because if you're coming from the, if you're coming from an economic stratosphere, economic, socioeconomic section, then that's not the dinner conversation, right? If they're not talking about, you know, what business skills were cut or what investments were made, you know, if it's, if it's, if, if that's not part of your everyday conversation, where do you get exposure to that to even know that that's an, an option, right? I think that's one of the things that's so like cool about the, the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Shopping Plaza being sort of in the mix, in, in play, right? People are aware that it's, it's, it's going to trade. It's, somebody's going to buy it. Somebody's going to redevelop it. You know, most kids or young people don't think about the fact that somebody actually owns the mall. Somebody owns it. And where did those dollars come from? And how do those dollars circulate within our economy? And, you know, I'm a firm believer. Everything is energy. We, we know that everything is energy, whether it's animate or inanimate, everything is energy. And money is one of the biggest energy sources we have. It's not finite, right? Which is why our government can just make more. They're just I'll just put more out there. But the question for all of us is how do you get in that flow? If, that, if that's energy, how do you become part of that energy flow and what's going on? And exposure to it, I think, is what um, can lead to that, what can help with that. And so that's kind of what AREP is about. How do we reach out and spread information about this, uh, this career option um, further than it's been going so far? Where that is, that is perfect. Um, so I'm going to start to wrap up uh, because I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Uh, thank you for taking the time because I feel like this, you know, is always conversations that we have outside of, you know, moments like this. And so to be able to share this with um, listeners is real a real treat. So thank you, Lynn. Um, so I end the show with, Three things. First is a phrase that you have to complete. Inclusion in my industry looks like. Greater access to capital all, the, all down the stack. What does life look like coming full circle to you? Oh, well, that's an interesting question right now because my youngest just graduated college. And so he is starting his career search. So my sort of, um, you never stop being a parent, but I am so proud to say my oldest just moved out on his own. He's running a house. He's doing this career thing. My youngest is starting. So certainly I'm at that point where what it means for me to be a parent is certainly changing, right? It's, it's, 
is no longer what it was. And I love that stage of it. I love the stage that my men are in. Um, I've been married for 31 years now, uh, actually tomorrow. So, you know, full circle is we were starting this journey, building a family, building a life. And now what is the second half of that um, going to look like for us? And a big part of it for me, I think, is understanding that my career motivations have changed before it was really, you know, getting my voice through college, getting these responsibilities. And now I would say that my career motivations are really connected to that passion project because having been on my own for the past three years, I understand how significant that access to capital gap is and that I don't think there's ever been a better time for us to have uh, both conversations and take action on doing something about it. So where can our listeners connect with you? What is the best way to reach out to Lynn? Um, so I probably on LinkedIn, I check my LinkedIn. I try to stay active on it. Um, I actively connect, uh, with people, especially in my industry. And, um, there's, there's links to my website on there for our share investment management. And, um, there's, there's changes coming for our share. I've got several partnerships that are in the works and, uh, I really am, am passionate about making moves on this, uh, the private equity emerging, um, private equity minority manager platform. So um, I would say just reach out to me on LinkedIn, Lynn King Tolliver, pretty easy to find. Uh, and I would love to hear from folks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.